Welcome to the Lindsay Hadley Podcast Show. I'm coming to you from the North Shore of Oahu, where weekly I interview some of the world's most inspiring people from business, philanthropy, and entertainment. I love collecting humans, and these are some of my favorites I've found along the way. This podcast is brought to us by Capita Financial Network. Do you need help with the next steps of your financial plan? Think Capita. Capita is a financial network built around you. They have a team of financial advisors, CPAs, state attorneys, Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. Call or schedule a complimentary consultation at 801-566-5058 or visit their website at capitafinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube. Hi, welcome to the Lindsay Hadley Podcast Show. Today, I'm so thrilled to introduce a friend of mine and someone I deeply admire. This woman has more world-class accomplishments on her resume than maybe there is dust on the bookshelf outside <laughs> of my house. Um, I really uh, can't believe all that this lady has accomplished in her, her life and um, done it with so much grace and style. But actually, um, Alexis Jones, who we have on the podcast today, um, talks a lot about in, in her new book called Joy Hunter about accomplishments and achieving an external validation in a way that was just so life-giving to me and something I could relate to so deeply. And I feel like in the frenetic pace of life today, Alexis um, has shared vulnerably deep eternal truths about what it's like to be human and how we can overcome the disease of trying to be enough. And, you know, I think um, what I'd love to do is just tell you a little bit of this rap sheet, even though She's the best thing about her is not so much what she's accomplished, but who she is inside and the humility and kindness and love and fortitude that she exhibits as a human being is what I really admire most. But we're talking Oprah Winfrey, Soul 100, Forbes 30 under 30. She's been a uh, contestant on Survivor, smoking hot in that bikini and <laughs> killed it on the show. Uh, she has also written two books now um, that have been bestsellers. Um, I Am That Girl and now Joy Hunter that just got released. Um, she founded a, a national and international movement called I Am That Girl, a nonprofit that has been radically successful, and then another nonprofit called Protect Her. And she's also a, a renowned global public speaker. I mean, she's spoken in places like the White House, internationally, and the UN. I mean, she's been everywhere. And then on top of it, uh, she was also a sports uh, broadcaster. So this is like just a couple of things she's done over the years <laughs> and, you know, all while graduating with honors and all these things. But now probably I'm sure she'll want to talk about a lot is um, she just joined motherhood with her beautiful baby boy. So we're so excited to have you on Alexis. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you so much. What a treat to get to see your beautiful face and to get to chat with you. It's so funny when you list all those things. Now all I feel is like I'm so tired. <laughs> it's so funny how you know love this life. You know you're like wow that sounds like a lot. I don't know how I ever did all of that, but hey, here we are. So yeah, so grateful to be on with you today. Oh, I'm so excited. So so Alexis, tell us a little bit about. I mean, your book was filled with so many treasures and so many moments. I just cried and I just thought. You're obviously um, eloquent and articulate and you tell stories. I mean, listening to you, if you want to get her book on Audible, she actually reads her narration and it is um, like listening to chocolate for me. Like she just sounds so smooth and amazing and knowing how fun, how fun it is to know some of her. I've known her for years along the way in the nonprofit sector, but what was it that made you want to share Joy Hunter? Because you, when you wrote the first book about I Am That Girl, it was much more about a movement about the body of work you were working on. This was so deeply personal. This was like your memoir, essentially. Would you kind of yeah. agree with someone exposing the second uh, book? Yeah, and I mean, there's definitely a moment like, you know, we were a month or two out from it actually launching, which meant we were, gosh, two and a half years deep into the project. Um, I was like half joking with Penguin Random House that I was like, can I give the advance back because I don't know if I'm ready to have this out like on shelves like I totally had a moment of like what was I thinking to be so honest and so vulnerable um but to your point I think that my first book I am that girl was was exactly that it was our manifesto it had some personal stories but it was really it was really to honor our community and it was really to give them you know inspiration and encouragement and it was like 
how can we give everyone a pep talk, you know, in eight hours worth of a book? Um, this, like you said, was was really deeply personal um, and, and very vulnerable. And I think part of it was also just my personal evolution that, and you know so much, so much of my personal story, but so much of my life was wrapped up in the work that I did. And I was very comfortable on big stages and talking about, um, talking about the work, you know, and, uh, and then I think that life offered me quite the divine invitation that like burned down everything in my life to give me a, an opportunity to rebuild something that was more true and something that was more authentic. Um, and also the invitation to be radically vulnerable, which was something I was good about preaching about on a stage, but I wasn't good about, um, actually doing it myself. And so I felt like Joy Hunter was kind of a little bit of like, you're good at talking the talk, but can you walk the talk? Um, and so, yeah, I think it was just a personal evolution of like, I'm ready to actually be seen for who I am, not what I do. And that was a bit of the, of the distinction and the evolution of those two books. That is so profound. You know, it's funny because when I met you, it was predated the, the, this book and a lot of the crux of the story that you went through. And I thought you were deeply vulnerable and, and living the talk, uh, you know, so I think you were in a lot of sense, and I'll just kind of reflect that back to you. I think it was just a deeper level, right? And and what you really highlighted was the tendency as humans to kind of self-deceive along the way, right? And we, we're we all susceptible to kind of not being aware of the um, programming or the, um, I would say, like patterns that are running over our lives. Because a lot of what we do works like, quite frankly, somebody like you who has achieved so much has gone a lot of payoff and accomplished a lot of good and blessed your life and created a lot of value for others because of this desire to achieve, you know, and to have outcomes and to be enough or whatever it is to create value also created a lot of value. So it's not all bad. So how do you hold that in totality? Because you're big, maybe you can summarize what Joy Hunter really is about in your own words, because I'm kind of doing it for you, but maybe you can share kind of what is the main message or theme of the book for our audience that hasn't read it yet. No, and I love you touched on so many things that like immediately ricochet inside of me, which are that programming. And I think that because I was able to preach about this stuff for a living, I was really good at intellectualizing the idea of we are not what we do. Um, but it's also like we're against a tsunami of cultural pressure. And like you said, it was one thing, like I really truly felt it was my divine purpose. Like the work that I was doing was living out um, a sense of purpose. And I was getting just this massive validation being in the activist space. And so it was kind of fueling this like unbeknownst to me, like so much of my ego and identity was wrapped up in, but look at all the good that I'm doing in the world, you know? And it wasn't until I started having everything in my life basically going really wrong. And one of the big telltales was just the physical pain, like the physical body pain. Like I felt like the wheels were coming off my, my body. And um, I was having really bad neck pain and I was having just kind of like phantom things that I would go to all these doctors and I was going to chiropractors and acupuncturists. And I just couldn't seem to identify like what is going on. Um, and of course, hindsight's perfect vision, right? So looking back, I'm like, oh, you mean because I was on the road 250 days a year um, and I wasn't taking care of myself. And so again, it was something I was so good at articulating self-care and self-love and my goodness I wrote an entire my first book was on being enough and yet I think the reality was underneath all of that I was so good at talking about it because it was quite literally the thing I struggled with the most and I think it was really easy to create um, a professional facade that was very shiny and very distracting um, from it almost reminds me of um uh, the what? What is the guy? The Wizard of Oz, who's like you know, like this yeah. tiny little man in this like you know, in the projection of this like big scary person. And I think I was kind of like the Oz of my own life. I, I had gotten so good at kind of projecting um, this version of myself, which, as you said, is certainly an accurate portrayal. It just wasn't all of me, and so it wasn't the more tender parts of me, and it wasn't the more insecure and vulnerable parts of me because I think I kind of bought into that pressure of kind of being the face of like girls women's empowerment and you know always being so powerful and so strong and so and yes those are components of who I am I think they're components of everyone but I don't think it took into account 
um, the parts of me, like I said, that were more tender and really required a lot more um, tending to. And I think how I tended to those parts was I entirely neglected them um, until everything came crashing down. And then, of course, I was given this beautiful uh, invitation to to build uh, back a life that was more true and more authentic. Oh, I love it. And you did such a good job building up how that transpired. And it's it's almost um, uncanny, like you couldn't have written it yourself better. You know, like the fact that you had COVID hit, which then shut down your entire industry because you were a public speaker traveling around and you couldn't do that anymore. And then the fact that you and your husband, um, Bradley, who I just store, you guys um, were have, experiencing miscarriage and infertility, which was so uh, harrowing and, and painful. And it really, I think real loss and, and psychic pain like that actually takes all the platitudes we've learned in our lives and like puts them in a crucible. And it's like, okay, now I, now I'm actually like living suffering of some kind or whatever it is when something really tragic happens. And then suddenly like, you know, it's like having to confront some of the things that we said when we didn't actually have that lived experience yet, you know, and then you, you had this, um, tell the audience a little bit about what happened with your dad. You know, when they say, uh, when it rains, it pours. And it just felt like I had these tiny fires everywhere, which were, you know, kind of this phantom physical pain that I couldn't figure out, but I was on the road so much that I didn't have time. Um, of course we had been trying to get pregnant for years. We finally got pregnant with IVF. We ended up losing the baby. And right around this time, um, I was doing a speaking tour with Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach called the Together Tour. And Ancestry.com was our biggest corporate sponsor. So we were doing like very traditional press um, for the tour. And all of a sudden I get a phone call that I uh, needed to talk to Ancestry directly that my agents couldn't be on the phone uh, because they had to quote unquote tell me something. And inevitably a huge family secret ends up getting revealed that my dad who raised me, who has coached everything I ever played, who is my real life superhero, um, that he is in fact not my biological father. Um, and that was quite an earth shattering bomb because, you know, that just felt like the most basic things that I know about myself, the foundation by which I built my life. Uh, and well, you know, you throw that curveball in when it feels like my entire life, my career, uh, I went on unemployment, you know, we had this eviscerating miscarriage and it just felt like, oh my God, like nothing else can possibly be taken away from me. Um, and I just felt like I was so naked in my own life and was just like, I remember having a moment being like, God, there's nothing left that you can take from me. Who am I if not this activist? If Who am I if not in especially the infertility for anyone listening who struggled with that, I think as, as a woman who has identified myself, um, identified by how quote unquote capable I am. And even as an entrepreneur who like quite literally builds things from nothing, um, the lack of control, um, that that's a very unique curveball for me was my work ethic couldn't outwork our infertility challenges. Um, and so it hit me every level, like you said, the psychic pain it hit me on every level, a level of loss, a level of feeling fundamentally in like inadequate. I mean, I think I really had to sit with like fear of powerlessness, of lack of control. And for like a type triple A, you know, like self-described like butt kicker, you know, and all of a sudden I, um, yeah, I was just sitting with all of these things that just felt like everything in my life was broken. You, you you really shared the exquisiteness of that pain because he, your dad was everything to you and your big fear was if he finds out, he doesn't know that I'm not his ch child. And if he finds out, will he not love me? Will he reject me? And I mean, that that as an adult woman, I mean, I can relate so much to what you went through at a different story, but there's a lot of similar tenants of just like death by a thousand cuts and a lot of, and then, which led to high functioning depression and anxiety. And I had... Uh, I had a, a, a rupture with my, my parents and, and because of like um, my faith journey and all these different things. And so there was a lot of like, there's something about as a child, like, I just want to know that I'm unconditionally loved and to, you know, that is such a deep need. And when I, when working through it with, with my therapist or other, you know, incredible people that helped me walk me through that, it's like, well, when you're a baby, 
your little bridge, he's just the cutest thing in the world. But if you and Bradley, for some reason, didn't care about him, he would die. I mean, like, if literally you just neglected him today all day long, within a couple days, he wouldn't survive. He needs you to feed him, to clothe him, to, you know, keep him warm, to shelter him. And humans are so vulnerable as little children. And so our our enmeshment in need of our parents' love is actually a biological and innate and, um, you know, pr basically uh, predicates all things of our life. So we never really truly grow out of that. Like we always want this love from our parents. And so here you were fearing and, and talk a little bit about when you, you know, you shared in the book that you went to your mom. And um, I just feel like, did you, did you struggle with, you know, tremendous resentment and betrayal of trust with her too? I mean, that, that's a whole, you know, everybody can immediately relate to what is that dynamic going to do to your relationship with your father? But what about your relationship with your mom? I mean, that's like a whole, again, foundational piece for you. Like my mom is my best friend in the whole world. So of course, you know, on the call, um, when they said your dad is not your biological father, um, the next thing she said was, you may want to have a conversation with your mom. And so of course I call my mom and I'm like, mom, this is so crazy. And at the time I'm thinking this is like, they've made a mistake. Like something's wrong. Yeah. Like obviously they made a mistake because obviously dad yeah. is, you know, my biological yes. father. Yeah. And my mom and dad had gotten worse when I was a baby, but they were incredible co-parents. We did every single holiday. We did everything together. Um, and so I called my mom and I said, this is so crazy and they're messing up my entire taping and they canceled it. And obviously, you know, we have to like figure this out. But, uh, they said that dad is, is not my biological father. It was just silence on the phone. And I like instantly knew, and I immediately hung up the phone and like in that 10 seconds of silence, all of a sudden, like electricity through my entire body. I was just like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And then all these little childhood memories started coming forward. They started painting a really different picture that like all individually seemed innocuous. But when you kind of strung them together, like, wait a second, like that would all of a sudden this knowing inside of my body. And as I talk about in the book, something that's kind of ironic is since I was third or fourth grade, um, I've always kept a journal throughout my entire life. And the most consistent thing since third or fourth grade is I've written in my journal, I know that I'm being lied to. I just don't know what it's about. Wow. And so there was this knowing inside of me wow. as a little girl, something was off, but I couldn't explain it. And then as soon as her silence weirdly confirmed that all of a sudden this was that thing. Um, so eventually I end up having a conversation with my mom. She ends up telling me who my biological father was, which that was an entire, um, also curveball of integrating. I grew up my whole life thinking that I was Caucasian. Um, my biological father is hundred percent Mexican. Um, so it was also incorporating that I'm half Latina. Like that's just a fact. And, um, and you add, you add the other piece, which is, it's not like I'm an accountant or a lawyer, or um, a scientist. Like, I literally tell my life story for a living. So all of a sudden, I was like, how do I rewrite my entire life to be truthful? And so actually, in the moment, my mom, um, when she came clean, um, which was tail end of a dying marriage, and she was the first to say there's absolutely no excuse. They were separated, but living together in the same house. Um, she had a one-night stand um with a man named Silvano Sanchez um in Beaumont Texas where I was born and um yeah she said uh which again now she absolutely looks back and says it was a completely unfair request but at the time she said please don't tell your dad and please don't tell your four brothers because she has been holding this for third five years this secret and her biggest fear is we do everything together your dad who my dad had remarried and Jane, my stepmom for 25 years, they'd been married, but Jane and my mom were really good friends. And she was basically like, basically everyone's gonna judge me and everyone's, you know, I'm not gonna be invited to family things. And so in the moment, I think that I have such a deep radical faith that my, I didn't go to resentment of my mom. I went to, I know without a shadow of a doubt that there is a divine plan in everything. And so, I just remember going to a sense of gratitude of like, mom, however I came into the world, I'm grateful for. Wow. And like, 
she has loved me so hard my whole life that I knew that her not being forthright was her protecting me. Like it wasn't about her protecting her own ego or her own reputation that she knew it. She'd always said my entire life, she's always said your dad is the best dad in the entire world. And they were honest about the fact that they were not great together married. And she was like, you wasn't the best husband and I wasn't the best wife, but I could not, I could not ask for a better dad in anyone who knows me and certainly anyone who knows my dad who raised me. Um, Mark Jones is the best dad in the history of the world. And if anything, my mom in making that decision um, thought that she was gifting me the best dad in the entire world. You know, my biggest fear in the whole world was, oh my God, if I tell my dad the truth and if, like, what if he minimally, what if he just never looks at me the same again? Like, what if it's just weird and awkward and and then worst case scenario nightmare is what if he doesn't love me? Which I, looking back, is completely illogical. But I think in those moments, you just go to that place of total fear. And so I tried to keep that secret. But of course, I'm so close with my dad that every time I was with him, I was like welling up with tears. And finally, he was like, sweetheart, what is going on lately? Like, and uh, so I ended up writing this letter because my dad also led my youth group. My dad is like the pillar of my faith. Um, and he would always talk about like the radical love of our faith and um, how love is bigger than anything and truth always reigns and the truth will set us free. So on all these tenants, I write this letter. In the letter, I explain that he is in fact not my biological father. Um, I tell him who is my biological father because they all played intramural soccer together. So he knew him. And, um, and in it, I said, I believe that our love is bigger than the data point of my conception. And I believe... I believe you when you have told me my whole life that the truth reigns and the truth will set us free and that um, and that love is bigger than all of it. And I hope that that is the case in this situation. So long story short, I thought I was going to be brave enough to read in the letter. I wasn't. I like threw it in his lap and I ran out of the house. And then he ended up like watching a football game for the next four hours. So he like didn't even read the letter. So I'm like doing awkward silence. <laughs> Oh my yes. God. Oh yeah. I'm four hours of him watching like the Cowboys play whoever that like he's disowned me and he wants nothing to do with me. And it turns out, of course, I end up calling uh, my stepmom and I'm like crying and I'm like, oh my God, does dad not want to talk to me? And she's like, what are you talking about? And, you know, uh, then I hear him in the background and she's like, you read the letter? And my dad's like, yeah. Oh no. Does she need me to read it now? I've been watching the game. And I'm like, oh my God. Long story short, um, of course, he says, you know, come over first thing in the morning. Let's talk about this. And as I come walking in, um, first thing he says is, Silvano Sanchez, huh? And I was like, oh, my God, no warm up. We can't, like, talk about the weather. Or, like, how, what was the final score of the game yesterday? And, um, and he said, the first thing I remember is that guy was a really great guy. And the second thing I remember is that he was uncomfortably attractive. And we both start laughing. And, um, you know, so it kind of, it kind of like breaks the ice. And then he says, but sweetheart, I actually have been holding, you know, a, a secret as well. And so then I look at him and I'm like, wait, what do you mean? What do you mean you're holding? Like, this is the secret. This is the thing that, you know, and he says, because the truth is I've always known. And that was so shocking to me. And I remember being like, wait, what? And he was like, I did the math. I'm an engineer. Like your mom and I, you know, we were, we were in the same house, but like we were sleeping together. And, you know, uh, um, I knew that you weren't mine biologically. He was like, but when you were born, um, I asked your mom in the hospital. Um, and she kind of like looked away and didn't really give me, um, give me an answer. And I knew in that moment it was confirmed that you were not mine biologically. He said, but when the nurse handed you to me, he said, I looked at you and... I chose you. In that moment, realizing and being the recipient of that kind of love, not love out of obligation, not love out of duty, but love as a voluntary decision and choice. And I remember him telling me that parenthood is not about biology. Motherhood, fatherhood is not about biology. He said, parenthood is a relentless choice to love 
that little person every it makes me emotional because now I have a son so who's like sleeping like two rooms over um but love is every time you change his diaper love is every time you wake up because he's crying every time you comfort him um and love is especially doing it when you don't feel like doing it um and so of course you know I'm bawling uh, and I go home and I tell my mom and then my mom is bawling because, you know, she's been holding this secret thinking that he was gonna, you know, never speak to her. And he and she's, she's like, what? He's known this whole time. And so it really was the definition of like, the truth will set you free, right? Like everyone's holding on to these secrets. Um, and the beautiful, what I think is like the divinity in all of it is that that is two years before we would eventually on our fertility journey have to hire an egg donor. So I am not the biological mother of my son, although I had the luxury of getting to carry him. Um, but when I look at how that seed was planted in anticipation, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that biology didn't matter. And biology doesn't matter with my son. That is my, are you kidding me? Um, but I think being shown, you know, my entire life, what that kind of love looks like, I knew that I was capable of offering the same to, to my child. So ended up being a beautiful tree. Um, and then I actually had the opportunity to go and meet my biological father and I had two biological siblings and they are so kind and so loving. And, um, my family has only gotten bigger because of this so it's kind of a crazy journey but alexis it's um truly a romantic story of, of love it's a it's a romantic personal story of god's love for you i mean i didn't even realize that you just told me something new because the book ends before you later because you were like we're still trying to get pregnant it's the end of the book and now i had no idea that he wasn't uh from a, a biological egg from a from a donor that is so unbelievably poetically beautiful and amazing. I could cry. That is just like too good. That is like movie level good. I mean, that is like plot twist. And you could never have, um, Nick, your son will always know that you know what it's like to be him in a sense. And that you'll always know what it's like to be the recipient of the kind of love you're now giving him. Like how special and connecting is that? And um, I giggled when you were telling some of the heavy parts of the story because I know the ending and it's so yummy and delicious and amazing. And just your dad, what an incredible human being. Like just his response, what a magnanimous soul. What an example of, you know, just reckless love. And I just, I'm just so impressed by you and your response. Tell me, okay, so you you go in deep. I mean, at some point in your, um, in, in the book, you talked a little about running for office and that this was put in front of you and these greater, the even greater accomplishments, so to speak, um, were, available to you and you ended up actually kind of leaving this beautiful dream home this beautiful life with all your family in austin and moved to wyoming which tell us a little bit about that part of the story and the reason the yeah because i want to ask about it because it's like you know how did you create that pattern disrupt where you were on this treadmill i mean you said your body was shutting down and then covid did it but in the midst of it all everyone's like hey we're gonna put you up to be the governor <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about that I mean, Brad and I just had a conversation recently in the kitchen where I was like, hey, how crazy is it to be like, what a different trajectory, like entirely different trajectory. And I hope it, or like most people don't have to have every single thing in their life. Like I always tell everyone, everything had to go terribly wrong in order to go terribly right. But I hope that I had friends who like stubbed their toe and they're like, oh my God, I stubbed my toe, but I got this amazing life lesson. And I'm like, oh, cool, cool, cool. Because my entire life had to burn down for me to get like my life lesson. But um, yeah, I was, it, which by the way, as far as like the summits that I had been climbing my whole life, it felt like the pinnacle. Um, my grandfather uh, was a judge in Austin and was best friends. He and my grandmother were best friends with LBJ and Lady Bird. Um, and it was kind of between my grandfather and LBJ who got the tap to run for president. Um, so we had some really deep political ties in Texas. And so I kind of felt like my whole life was being teed up to go into public office always. It was always a matter of time, but I think I assumed like in my fifties or sixties. And so when what I refer to in the book as kind of the powers that be, 
um, approached me and said, hey, we we want you to run sooner than later. And I was like, oh, okay, you mean in the next like five to 10 years? And they're like, no, 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 in like in a race in two years. And I was like, wait, what? Um, but in the moment, it actually felt like such a privilege um, to be asked to run for office. And especially as a woman, especially um, with this new information. Yeah, in a conservative state too. Yeah, and you know, Texas is the ninth largest economy in the world. Um, and so to be able to exact that kind of change and the reason that this particular office was identified um, for a couple reasons was one, there is no contribution limitations. Um, and the team felt very confident that I could raise enough money, which um, you know, we had ballparked about $100 million that we were going to have to raise for, um, for the campaign. Um, and we had already verbally secured a significant amount of that money. Um, and in addition to that, very specific in Texas is that this position appoints 1,500 leadership positions across Texas. So when wow. we were looking at being able to like really implement change, the idea was it wasn't just running for one position, it was running for 1,500 in one position. And so wow. in, it was very in alignment with my entire life, which was being audacious um, and really standing for something and, and more than anything disrupting a system, an antiquated system, which I think like across the aisle, I feel like everyone can agree that like in general politics are a mess. And like, um, so it excited me the thought of inspiring an entire generation in our generation and generation below us to really believe in their leadershiping um, so there was a lot of things that felt in alignment for me. Um, in addition, I just love, I love a good underdog story. So um, it was, it was lighting up a lot of things inside of me. Um, and at the same time, I can look back and say, again, I was on the road 250 days a year and um, my body was not so quietly protesting against what I was um, expecting of it and asking of it. Um, obviously our fertility and looking back, I'm like, oh, shocking. I couldn't get pregnant when I was on the road, 250 days a year and my cortisol levels were probably off the charts. And, um, you know, I, my plate was so full. How could I possibly imagine, you know, if anything, I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, what, what a beautiful gift that my body was protecting me. Um, at that time, I couldn't see that in the moment of our miscarriage, but looking back, what a gift. Um, because I, my life, um, that life that I had created up until that point, um, was not, was not the life that I wanted to be living. And so I think that for me, I didn't know how I could get off this speeding bullet train because I'd been at like a professional people pleaser my entire life. And the thought of disappointing everyone, actually, I don't think. I want to run for office after like months and like fundraising. And I was like, I can relate to people who is like, yeah, we're like on the marriage train. And they're like, I just didn't know how to like get off and like the wedding and everything was paid for. And like, I can understand that pressure. Um, and so in a weird way, everything falling apart was a, was such a gift for me because it really was a pause on everything. And it gave me a moment. We shelved the entire campaign. I mean, it was incredibly uh, tone deaf to be raising money for political office that was two and a half years out when we were in the midst of COVID and people were losing love and right. And then we became in the midst of Black Lives Matters. Like there were so many things that deserved um, everyone's full attention. So we shelved the entire campaign. All my speaking engagements were canceled overnight. 150 events were all canceled within two weeks. Um, so the velocity of, you know, this train, the speeding bullet just stopped and gave uh, me a moment to reevaluate. Incredible. Like what, what, a, what a gift. I love how you ended up in the mountains. Um, I'm from Utah, really similar, you know, really similar, like, landscape and, and lifestyle and all that. And it, you know, it is so life-giving and I moved here to Hawaii and for me healing, you know, the somatic system of the body, like your parasympathetic nervous system actually chills out and goes out of firefight when you're in nature, when you're in, you know, a beauty around you and the vastness and beauty of where you live is just undeniable. And, you know, um, 
And then you can kind of get back to yourself and then choose. I mean, I still am like, okay, well, maybe in your 50s or 60s, can you run for office? And instead, can you go for president? I will I will help fundraise for you. Put it on, put it down on record. Um, Alexis can't run for president. Um, but I, you know, I think when I when I think about your story, one of the things that I thought was really beautiful um, as you started promoting the book, you had somebody on, I don't remember, you posted this on social media, but somebody got on, pretended to be someone else, like a guy named Steve, and then wrote some pretty vicious things about you, calling you a narcissist and all this stuff. And I, you know, for me, like because external validation has been my drug of choice, you know, <laughs> has been my addiction, um, that I, that thank heavens, I, I, it doesn't have me by the throat anymore. And, it, you know, I still have to work to choose every day to choose and ask myself, am I doing this from love or am I doing this for love? And those are radically different ways of being. And so I'm always thinking, you know, that asking that question because it's so easy to default and just do this thing and think it's this loving act when actually it may be helping someone actually is to get something. Um, there might be some strings attached. And so it's really beautiful when I ask myself that I can make decisions. And then there's such an abundant flow and life-giving um, presence to, to my, my generosity and my natural desire to make good things happen and have a positive impact. But, you know, and when, when, when I, uh, when you posted that somebody did that, I just felt so defensive of you and protective of you. And I can understand how people, because you were, you were like, this is my story. And these are things I've accomplished. And this is who I'm like. And, and you're telling your story. And there's a lot of focus. And you're talking about your accomplishments. And people are just like, oh, my gosh, we throw this word narcissist around and all this and all this stuff. But, you know, I, I, I'm i curious, like you responded so magnanimously. Can you talk a little bit about how you have throughout the years of your life and you've had some close friends and relationships that go sideways and things? Because when you put yourself out there, you love as hard and deeply and you're as vulnerable as you are, man, stuff. It's a high contact sport to show up and be yourself. I mean, it is big time. Um, and and we and I know for me, I've had my part in some of those relationships falling apart. Of course, all relationships are two-way. And, you know, sometimes we come into each other's lives to teach each other great lessons and then move on. But can you share a little about what you've learned about people that have accused you as you've shined really brightly, as you've put yourself out there as you've owned your accomplishments and owned your greatness and owned your brokenness, how they've looked at you and, um, yeah, basically just attacked you and accused you. Like, how do you handle that, Alexis? Because I'm sure that wasn't your first time. That was somebody who cowardly did it anonymously, but I'm sure you've had more than that in your life. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, literally, a few days ago, I posted a picture and I was talking about my, my body and now as a mother. And I was trying to to emphasize like that I view my body as a verb, not as an adjective. And that, you know, on the other side, like what warriors we are. And it was like meant to be this like inspirational post for like moms everywhere. And then I get this like eviscerating comment of one be like, you're the problem because you're, you know, and it's just like, no matter what, what I've realized is you either inspire people or you trigger people and there's nothing in between. Because inevitably, every single one of us, and this is harsh and hard accountability for me as well, that we are only ever mirrors for each other. And so when someone irritates me or, me or makes me mad or frustrates me, um, and I catch myself saying negative things about them, inevitably, the spiritual practice is, the reality is that's how I feel about myself. They just triggered something inside of me, whether I'm conscious or unconscious about it of something that I don't like in myself. And so now, whether it's praise, which I, by the way, I think is equally dangerous, right? To believe the praise, especially for people that don't know you, and you and I have a different relationship. We have personal relationships. So I, I deeply value what you think about me, and I deeply value the impact and the influence that you have in my life. But especially when we open ourselves up to social media, where the vast majority of people who follow me on social media have never met before, and so one thing that I realized is it is just as dangerous to believe the praise as it is to believe the criticism. And yet it's a lot easier to sink into, I can have a hundred comments that are positive and that one comment of negativity for a long time was like the thing that just irked me, like was the thing that I'd be like, are you kidding me? And so when I made the comment and I reposted, um, quote unquote, Steve, you know, and I think part of it is also just, golly, uh, screens are such a good hiding place for cowards. 
And I think it actually takes a lot of bravery. And, and, and the woman who recently posted about my bathing suit picture, one thing that I appreciate is she said, listen, this is just my opinion. But for you to not acknowledge that you have an ideal body type, I think perpetuates the unrealistic expectations for women in their bodies. And as much as it kind of hurt, because I was like, really, this is me just trying to like tell all these moms out there that they're awesome and to keep going, that I appreciated that it was her real name and she stood behind it. And so the thing that you're referencing that I posted of this person named quote unquote Steve, uh, it was absolutely like a made up name and it was hugely personal. Um, it was a personal att attack disguised as an Amazon book review. And my thing is, if you are going to offer someone critical feedback and you do not have the guts and the courage to say it to their face, you don't get to hide behind a screen. And so that isn't a person. And that's why I reposted it is I was like, listen, you know, for anyone out there in the world, when you offer your true self to the world, this is the cost. Like you said, like real life being really who you are and shining as bright as you possibly can is going to trigger every single person who is a limiting belief that at some point in their life, they were told to dim their light and they believed it. So when you shine your light as bright as you can, damn straight, you're going to trigger them and they're going to come after you because they have to protect the limiting belief that has justified their entire life for not being as big and bright as they're capable of. So now, whether again, whether it's the praise or whether it's the criticism, I'm like, doesn't matter. It actually says everything about that person and nothing about me, but for the people who know me and uh, Zendaya's, um, what, what's her boyfriend's name um, or fiance now? Tom, yeah, Tom. You know, yes. About? No, there was this great little interview that I just saw recently, and he was basically like, if you have a problem with me, um, then text me or call me. And if you don't have my number, you don't get to have a problem with me. I was just like, I love the idea that like, I will take feedback from anyone who has my cell phone number. You are allowed to call me. You are allowed to text me. And I would love to have a conversation. But if you don't have my personal cell phone number, you shouldn't have a problem with me. Like, I didn't want I love that little bit of remembering that at the end of the day, the people like Brene Brown talks about, like the people who are willing to be in the arena with you get to have a say and everyone else like you don't get to you don't get to throw tomatoes from the stands and get to impact my life yeah and and what how have you handled along the way because you you talked about an ex-boyfriend and other relationships how have you handled along the way and i know in business there's all kinds of you know people go certain directions people have different paradigms um but how have you handled if they do know you and the criticism is really harsh People will like really demonize people and turn them into a cardboard cutout. And I've done it too. When you're, when you feel hurt, you, you know, you dehumanize people as a way to like make the rejection less painful. How have you, how have you handled that? And what tips or advice do you have when it, when they do actually know you? You know, I think it's one thing to like, how do you handle like strangers comments on social media? You know, that's one thing, but I think you're right. Like there's no question that the, the most painful experiences in my life have been at the hands of people that I loved very much. And then like the lack of control around their narrative of me um, has been a complete surrendering to the fact that like, I, you can't make anyone believe you, right? And once they create a story about you and heaven forbid they share that story and that story becomes contagious to other people and if other people are willing to believe that. And I think it, you know, exacerbates like, any like seventh graders worst nightmare of like the, my biggest moments of maturation have been letting go of the things that I can't control um, and like truly giving those up and like continuing. I mean, in how I operate, I continue to pray for those people and to say, cause at the end of the day, you know, if anyone is holding like negative energy about me, like they have to live with that every day, you know, and again, the accountability are the people that I demonize. And I love that you said that of like, not only, you know, have people cut out cardboard versions of me, but I've done the same to other people. And I put people on a list of like, they're just bad people because of X, Y, and Z that they've done. And so it's a real accountability and kind of like, you know, the the speck in, you know, in my eye, like the, the log, you know, that actually exists um, when I'm the one judging other people. And I think that I, in 
the moments where I am praying that someone would offer me grace. I think the only thing that I have control over is offering the people grace in my life, um, which really frees me up, right? Frees me from holding on to the negativity or holding on to a story that simply doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist in this present moment, but I continue to like drag these suitcases of injustices around with me. Um, but, you know, some days are better than others. And like some days I'm like, oh, it doesn't hurt as much. I mean, like any heartbreak, you know, and then there's some days that, you know, I love how Facebook just tees up pictures of like the people that, you know, you're like the people you you've been broken up. With. They're like, remember this memory 10 years ago? And you're like, cool, cool, cool. Didn't want to cry today, but here I am crying today. And so I think part of it is like tending to the wounds that absolutely are still here. And when I have moments of real sadness and, um, you know, there's several people in my life that um, we had falling out and probably the biggest energy that I hold around it is I miss them. And that missing, that missing hasn't stopped, even though I'm like, but they wronged me and they did this and they, and the reality is the only reason there's any energy that still exists there is because I still have love for them. That's why that energy still exists. And um, so I try to be really conscious when I feel sad, I'm like, man, wonder what they're up to. You know, like I wonder, and I had a, a dear friend who we had a falling out a lot of years ago. We actually connected about a year ago, six, six months, a year ago uh, for the first time. We hadn't spoken in years. Um, and it's one of those things where it's like, are we going to be as close as we used to be? Probably not. But was it really good to hear her voice? Yeah, it was. And I think I'm also someone who will forever leave an opening in the door that any relationship of someone meant something to me, of someone that I loved, that even if it means that I carry the pain in order to continue to carry the love, that I'll carry the weight of that hurt because I'm unwilling to shut the door entirely. I love how you said when you get to a certain place, um, I, I love how you said it's the cost of kind of loving it, you know, like on all whole bit because that's been my thing in any of those relationships that, that, that went, that went sideways. And there's just been a, a few, they are um, exactly that. I just love them and I miss them. And I, and I see all the good in them still. I mean, I still, I don't even know what they're, some of them I have no contact with. And I don't know what they're doing. And some, i still see all the beauty and good in them. Like there's a reason I fell in love with them. That's also who they are. I can hold them in their totality. And the better I can do that, the better I can hold myself. And what I've realized is where, where I can really let go because there's kind of two ways I can look at someone going, oh, they're just really insecure. Oh, they're just really jealous. Or, oh, they're just really hurting. Or, you know, you can come up with these narratives or whatever. Oh, they're really, they weren't till illness or whatever. You could come up with whatever label or thing that sounds like, oh, like uh, Texas, they do this a lot. Bless their heart. And it can be kind of condescending, you know? And it's like, or it can literally be like, oh my gosh, they're hurting so much that they would, you know, that they would throw away all of the, the beauty between us um, and hold on to this thing and make it into this wow like there must be really hurting like for them to choose that in this you know in, in this story um and the the reality is like the more that I've learned to love myself and actually be at peace with myself I'm okay like I'd love to have them in my life I'd love for us to be buddies I want every I want there to be all I want is connection and and intimacy and to be fully known and chosen. I want others in my life to feel safe and have that intimacy. Intimacy is the yummiest, best thing in the world. And I'm willing to pay the cost. And part of that cost is them opting out and the low vote and people going, no, because I, I know that, um, you know, that if there was room for reconciliation and healing, I, I think that's the most beautiful, miraculous thing in this world. Like, I don't think there's anything more miraculous um out there than the ch a changed heart you know or uh and you know um in my faith you know, we talk about repentance and really it just means it, it like in the greek version of, of of the biblical sense it actually means to just change your thinking 180 degrees just change a thought so it doesn't even need to mean that they go back and undo because i love what you said about your mom i never held that resentment because you knew her well enough to know that she's doing the best she could you know and, and I knew there was love behind it. It's like all the people wronged me, they're doing the best they can, just like I am. And I did things that were wrong or I did things that I regret or that I'm embarrassed of or that I had shame for. But at the end of the day, I was doing the best I could. And I believe that about all them. And so you can have this 
pillow, pillows of grace underneath your life in the past and be okay that we're not going to just like rush into false intimacy with somebody. Because the other part that maturity has taught me is that love um, is unconditional, but trust is earned. And those are two radically different things. Two things in this conversation where I'm like, oh my God, I'd have to write those down. The whole like be from love or for love. I'm going to have to write both of those down. And what you just said, say it again, please, one more time. I want to hear it again. It was that love, love is truly unconditional, but trust is earned. Yeah, it's meant to be that way. It's a real gift. Um, and so I, I just think you are so amazing. You're somebody I both love and trust. And I'm so grateful that you came on the show today, Alexis. Is there anything that you want to tell the audience, lead with them, a call to action? Hey, grab the book, do this. Anything you want to leave as a final thought as we kind of wrap up here? Final thought is that, you know, I obviously talk a lot about joy in the book. And I think that joy is different than happiness because joy is, I think, very, very unique to every individual. And one of the things I've been offering lately is on your phone, on a piece of paper, write down it just in bullets the things that bring you actual joy. And even if they feel silly, um, but to make the list of those things, um, because I think joy is actually mandatory for our health and wellness, that it is the oxygen to our soul. And it's not enough to just have a list, but figure out how to integrate and schedule those things into your life. Because shoot, when we become adults, um, much less parents and like dial of seriousness and accountability and responsibility and integrity and all these things get ramped up. I think we have to intentionally turn up the dial of love and joy and fun in spontaneity. Um, so I just want people to give themselves permission. It is not a selfish thing. It is not a silly, flimsy, superficial thing that joy is required of our human spirit. Um, and it's okay to prioritize those and to actually schedule them into our lives. I think it makes us all better and more capable people. Oh, that's so good. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Alexis. You're the best. I love you. I love you so much. Do you need help with the next steps for your financial plan? Think Capita. Capita is a financial network built around you. They have a team of financial advisors, CPAs, estate attorneys, Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. Call to schedule a complimentary consultation at 801-566-5058 or visit their website at www.capitafinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube.